Hello, Frighters! I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. Welcome, everyone, to episode two, and also feels like year three of the COVID-19 quarantine. My mental breakdown is real, and... (laughs) I think the thing that best explains it is two TikTok sounds that are out, which I know it's, I'm a little old for TikTok, but still it's super fun. (laughs) And the two sounds are the one that's like a ripoff of a, do you want to build a snowman? But it's, do you want to start drinking? (laughs) I know it's only noon. (laughs) I sometimes start even before then, but that's, that's neither here nor there. And then the one that's like, Hey, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. I'm lying. I'm dying inside. The the breakdown's real. But I want to give a shout out to all the moms because the day this is coming out is Sunday, Mother's Day. So shout out to my mom. And this is also a mental reminder for anyone listening that it's Mother's Day. You should probably text your mom. So now I'm going to get into this crazy case for you guys. And it is maybe one you've heard of, maybe one you haven't. I only knew certain things about it before I started researching for this episode. So I am going to be talking today about the Sauter family's missing children. And it's just a crazy, twisty, topsy-turvy mystery that still hasn't fully been solved. And Everyone has their own opinions and theories, but I'm going to start off with the parents and a little bit of the background of the family. So the father was George, and he was born in Italy, and his name was Giorgio Sadu, and he was born in 1895. When he was 13, he moved to the U.S. He moved to the U.S. in 1908 when he was 13 years old, and he was really hesitant to talk about his past and what brought him to the U.S., but he came here with his brother, and his brother basically was like, peace out, have a nice life in the U.S., I'm going back to Italy, deuces, and George found work for the Pennsylvania Railroad, He moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he became a long-haul trucker, and he worked for a pretty big company, but then he ended up starting his own company, and that's kind of how he met his wife. So during one of these long hauls, he went into a store, and the owner's daughter happened to be there. Her name was Jenny Cipriani, and she was the future Jenny Sauter. They ended up moving to Fayetteville, West Virginia, which has a very large Italian community because Jenny was also Italian and came to the States when she was three. They moved there, had 10 kids, which is just too many, which is kind of ironic because when I was like five years old, I would say I wanted 10 kids. I wanted to adopt five and have five. I now realize how ridiculous that was. Like that was that was just crazy and I have 
definitely changed that mindset very quickly. I couldn't find the name of one of the older children because he was in the military at the time. But the other children that were in the house when the mystery and disappearance occurs uh, were John, George Jr., Marion, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia. Leading up to the fire and the children disappearing, there were some really odd occurrences that happened. There was a man that came to their house asking George about a haul and some work that he could get through George's company. And he was kind of just meandering around the house, which I don't fucking know why. I couldn't really find a reason why he was looking around the house, but he ended up seeing the fuse box, which was outside. And he told him, he's like, someday this is going to start a fire. And George just kind of thought to himself, what the fuck are you talking about? We just had this checked. Like the company told us it was fine. Like, I don't I don't get what you're talking about. So that was one weird occurrence, which you can kind of sometimes just brush one off like "Ah, it's just a coincidence. But then around the same time, there was a man that tried to sell the Sauter family life insurance. And George kind of shooed him away, just declined the offer. And the guy got really aggressive and angry and was like, your goddamn house is going up in smoke. He then said, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini because it was not a very popular opinion and it kind of gave him enemies. But George was very, very outspoken about his strong political beliefs, especially about Mussolini which obviously in an Italian community didn't give him that much favor. People didn't really like how outspoken he was about it. Then a little closer to Christmas, because these last two occurrences were in the fall, one of the older Sodder children noticed that someone was watching the children outside when they were playing. So these are just some weird occurrences that happened leading up to the... Christmas Eve of 1945 in the Sauter family home. If you can picture it, it's Christmas Eve. The kids just got their gift, one gift on Christmas Eve. My family did that too. So it's it was always so much fun because you'd get the one gift, you'd stay up, you'd play with it, you'd get really excited. You wouldn't want to sleep, but then you would because Santa's coming. I mean, everyone can remember being like seven years old. So... Sylvia, the youngest child, was only two, so George and Jenny went up to bed with Sylvia. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty stayed up to play with all the fun toys that they just got on Christmas Eve. The oldest daughter, Marion, ended up staying up with them to kind of watch over them and get them to bed when it was time. And I couldn't find out when they all went to bed, but because of the timeline and what I've been able to find, they were in bed by midnight. A little after midnight, Jenny got a call. It was someone with like a maniacal, menacing laugh. And they asked for someone that the Sodders didn't know. 
So she chalked it up to a wrong number and was like, that's weird. It's midnight, wrong number, whatever. And she went downstairs to make sure that the kids got to sleep. She goes downstairs. The lights are still on. The door is unlocked. Again, she just chalks it up to the kids were playing with their toys, super excited, just amped up from the toys. And when they went to bed, they just didn't do all the things they were supposed to. So she turns off the lights, does all that, and goes back to sleep. Then a little while later, like within the next half hour, she's woken up to a loud noise on the roof. And again, she goes to kind of check on things, but there was nothing outwardly wrong. Santa came early, you know, I mean, it it happens. She couldn't really see anything that was going on, though. So she went back to bed. But the next time at 1 a.m. when she woke up, her life and George's life would be changed forever. The next time she woke up around 1 a.m., there was a fire. The older Sodder children and the baby Sylvia were able to get out of the house because of the way that the layout is. George went to go get the younger kids, but the way the house was laid out, the fire was strongest in the hallway he had to go to to get to the younger children. So he gets who he can out, he gets out safe, and then goes to the back of the house because he usually keeps a ladder back there and it's propped up against the house. So he's like, I'll just use the ladder, climb up, do all that, get the kids out that way. But the ladder was missing. So then he goes to his car, which was working the night before, and he gets in the car to kind of back it up so that he can get to the window to get the kids out. But his car isn't working. At this time, people are also having trouble getting in touch with an operator So there's just a series of unfortunate events. Someone finally got in touch with the fire chief, Morris, and he started a phone tree, which to me sounded really, really odd and super inefficient. But that is the luxury of being a millennial and having technology that we have today because it just wasn't the same back then. And the phone tree, because of the way that the operators had, I'm I'm not even going to attempt to pretend that I know how it worked, but you had to get in touch with an operator who would then put you in touch with the person that you needed to get in touch with. It wasn't like, it wasn't like how the phones work today. So seven hours later at 8 a.m., the chief and firefighters came to the scene, but the fire had run its course in like 45 minutes. The, the fire only lasted 45 minutes and their their life was ruined. I mean, there was nothing left. The house was like in shambles. He ended up telling the family that the children probably died in the fire because it was so hot. But the Sodders, I mean, maybe it's parents' intuition. I'm not a parent, so I can't really speak to that. But they, they just had this feeling that their kids weren't dead. And I don't think it's that weird because it is really hard for a fire to burn bones and burn things like that. Like the fire has to be really fucking hot. It's not, it's not easy. It's like insanely difficult. It also kind of like, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense that the children's bones would 
have burned in the fire just because it doesn't seem like the fire would be hot enough to do that. So then all the investigations started. There was a inquiry into the fire, which was found to be an accident. The coroner basically just went with this finding and said that the children probably died of suffocation or the fire, even though their bodies weren't found. So there's no proof of what happened at all. And during the investigation, the police found that the phone line had been cut and it wasn't like burned off. It was cut like someone took a scissor and cut it. The police were like, ah, this this fire started because of faulty wiring. But if you remember, like I said, on at midnight, the electricity was working fine. So how could it be faulty wiring if the electricity was working? That doesn't really make much sense. I'm no electrician, but I think you need I think you need the wiring to work in order to have the electricity. I think I know that much. Then a witness came forward saying that they saw a person at the scene. I couldn't really find how they knew, but they said that this person had certain equipment that gave you the ability to take the engine out of a car. I can't think, I I honestly don't know the name and I don't know how they saw it, but they said that they had like this certain equipment and that could potentially have been why George's car didn't work because it worked the night before. George and Jenny obviously went back to take a look at the scene and see if there was anything that was salvaged that they could keep. Just, I mean, all their memories were in that house. So they brought their youngest daughter, Sylvia. And while she was playing in the yard, she found a metal object. This object was determined to come from a firebomb. This just kind of triggered the memory in Jenny of the noise on the roof. And so it kind of became, could that have been the noise that she heard on the roof that night? Could it have been one of the firebombs? And then the Sodder family, they didn't find out right away, but at the scene, four bones and what looked to be a heart were found. But they weren't informed until later. And when they found out, they confronted the chief and they were rightfully pissed off that they weren't told about this. They were waiting for the testing to come back. And what they found out was what was believed to be the heart was actually beef liver. Coroner said that the bones that they found, they felt belonged to someone that was a little older than what the solder children who were missing would have a little older than they would have been. The Sauter family had hired their own private investigators. And so when he, the investigator went to get the box with the liver in it, everything was missing. It was mysteriously gone. And the police just were like, oh, they're crazy. They're, they've been misled. It's just wild fantasies. They're, they're crazy. They then ended up going right to J. Edgar Hoover because they wanted the FBI involved because they just didn't think the police were doing enough. They went to J. Edgar Hoover and they received a personal, a personal note back from him. He said, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. He basically summed it up in saying, if the Fayetteville police 
invite us, we can come, but that's the only way we'll be able to make it. The Fayetteville police refused because they're like, you guys are crazy. This was an accident. The kids are dead. They died in the fire. Like, you're just, you're grieving. You're like, you just, you can't see it clearly. They were told that the search for the children was useless and they closed the case. And the story ended up captivating the nation mostly because they decided to put up billboards which just kind of remo- reminds me of the movie that came out a couple years ago, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, which is a crazy movie that's really good. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. It's not a happy one, but if you're into true crime like me, that probably doesn't matter. But the billboard said, what was the motive of the law officers involved? And then another billboard said, what did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? And along with this, there was a reward of $5,000. And eventually that was put up to $10,000. That would just be a shit ton of money now. Like 144000 close to that. It's a ridiculous amount of money. Again, the family wasn't super happy with the way that the police were trading this. So in 1949, they got the Smithsonian to excavate the fire scene where four of the bones were found. And they were thought to be teenage human. I couldn't really find an age of like what teenage year they could be. But some of those kids that are missing were teenagers. So it could be them. Also in the basement, George found another firebomb remnant like they found outside. It's just a crazy investigation. And I mean, in my opinion so far, it seems like they might have been a little quick to rule this case closed. The kids died in the fire, but it's 1945 and like there's not many places the kids could have gone And so I can see where they would come to the conclusion that the kids died in the fire because the parents thought that the kids were in the house. So where could they have gone? There's a lot of weird things after this fire occurs, too, because the children, there's a lot of sightings of these kids. The night of of the fire, a woman said that she saw children passing in a car during the fire. She thought that these children were the the missing solder children. There's another woman that was working at a tourist stop 50 miles away from the solder's home. That morning, she served the children breakfast in Charleston in a hotel. One of the people that worked there saw the photos of the children in the newspaper And she reached out to the authorities and said that she saw four out of the five of them a week after the fire. She said the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She said in a statement, I do not remember the exact date. She did talk about how she tried to interact with one of the kids and be friendly I mean, it's the hospitality industry. I'm in that industry. I work for like conference events doing audiovisual work. So I 
I get the hospitality behind it and needing to be friendly to everyone. But the reaction was really weird because one of the men got really like agitated and angry when she went to speak to the children and would not let them talk. They were gone by the next morning. Then they received a letter saying that Martha was in a convent in St. Louis. A bar patron in Texas said they overheard a conversation about someone saying something about a fire in West Virginia around Christmas. Another person said that the kids were with one of Jenny's relatives in Florida. And to George's credit, he followed up on all of these leads Either he would go himself or they had a private investigator go and check out any lead that they could, which is a lot of money. Like that, that's really expensive. I mean, I applaud his work and they just didn't think the police were doing enough. So they felt they had to take it into their own hands. 20 years after the fire, Jenny received a letter from Kentucky. There was no return address and... It was only made out to Jenny Sauter. There was no one else on it. In this letter, there was a photo. The photo, in the Sauter's opinion, looked a lot like what their son Lewis would look like when he was older. The back of the photo said, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, little boys, A90132, but it's also seen that it could be a90135. So it's either 132 or 135. The Sodders thought it looked so much like Lewis that they put the picture on their mantle and had it over their fireplace because they really thought this was their child. They went and sent a private investigator to follow up on this lead, and they never heard from him again. He was he just disappeared and They never got answers on if that was Lewis or not. So then it comes to like a lot of the questions. Who called the house the night of the fire? Why was the ladder moved? Because the ladder was missing from the side of the house. But while they were investigating, they found it a little ways away, but not where it normally was. What was the noise on the roof? Was it really a firebomb? And was that really Lewis in the photos and What happened to the investigator the Sodders hired, and why did he never get back to them? How did the kids get out? Because kids aren't quiet. Like, if there's a stranger that's coming after them and taking them, surely they would have made noise. That's just how kids are. They they make noise on the slightest of things, so they're going to make noise if someone's trying to take them. So there's a lot a lot of theories. One theory is that the local mafia had tried to recruit and extort George and he refused them. So what comes of this theory is they thought maybe some people that were with the mafia came in when the fire was occurring under the guise of they were going to get the children somewhere safe and get them away from the fire. And either they didn't last through the night or to keep their family safe, they didn't get in touch with them. There's a young neighbor that said the Sodder children were murdered and dumped in a nearby well, but 
police later just deemed this person a mental case and completely disregarded everything that this child said. There was a killer called the Mad Butcher, and someone thought that it could very easily be the same person. Also, George Sauter had worked for someone named F.J. They angrily parted ways, but F.J. was still a co-signer of the Sauter's house and had increased it without their knowledge, and it was just a whole big kerfuffle between these two people. 60 days before the fire, and we're going to get back to something I was talking about earlier, 60 days before the fire, F.J. urged Mr. and Mrs. Sauter to take out life insurance on their children, but they refused. And then he is quoted as saying, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. He reportedly told them, you are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. Funny thing though, he was never questioned. And he served as chairman on the coroner's inquest into the fire, which is where they ruled it an accident. There's just some weird circumstances around that. And it just doesn't look like the police really looked into him because they're like, ah, this guy, he was part of the inquest. He was the chairman. Like, it was an accident. He says it was an accident. They didn't seem to look much further into it. To Sylvia's credit, the youngest of the Sauter children. She's the only one that is still alive because she was a lot younger than the actual children that survived other than the five that went missing. She would be around 77 now. She has always maintained like her parents that the kids are still alive, firmly believes this. But this next theory is one that I also consider highly likely. So the Sauters had animals and the animals needed tending. And that was some of the children's chores. There's a possibility that the children went outside to take care of the animals, feed them, do all that stuff after they were done playing with their toys. Because, you know, I mean, it was Christmas. They were going to want to play with the toys the next morning too. So they're like, ah, let's, let's get this so we can do it a little bit later tomorrow and get to spend the morning playing with their toys, blah, blah, blah. So it's thought that maybe the kids went out to do those chores after playing with the toys on Christmas Eve, they were taken at that point and that they weren't taken from their bed. They never went to bed. When I think about this theory, when you think about the lights being on, the house being unlocked, like that would occur if the kids were just going out to take care of the chores, hang out with each other a little more, get all that done, and then come back inside. If they were doing that around midnight, I mean, the call kind of makes sense too, because the person could have called him after the kids had already been taken. So I think that the, it's a it's a really likely possibility that the kids weren't heard screaming or being scared. And I mean, only four bones were found. There was five kids missing. You would find more than four bones. Like, if a fire is hot enough to burn bones, you're not going to just find four. All the bones are going to be burned. It's like, logically, that's that's how I see it. And I'm no doctor. I'm no coroner. Like, I'm not an arson investigator. 
If you know anything different, tell me. But I would just assume that it's not just going to burn some bones. It's going to most likely leave a, a lot more or get take care of all of them. That's just how I feel. If their bones weren't found, there's a good chance that maybe these kids were taken while they were outside tending to the animals. And that's why the lights were on, the door was unlocked. And once they were taken, they got a call. And that could be why the person was like laughing menacingly because it was essentially like a taunt to the family. Even with this, I I honestly don't know. I, I fall on a different side every time I think of this case on if I think that the kids are alive or not, because them being taken outside when they're doing chores, that could also lead back to the mafia, to that theory, because it could have been the mafia that took them, could have been FJ that like, who knows who, who took these kids and what the motive of taking the kids were. Was it to get back at the parents? Because if it's just to get back at the parents and like upset them, then there maybe maybe they were alive and they were just put into other families and taken care of in just by some random people. You would think though that they were old enough. I mean, a lot of them were between the ages of like five and thirteen. So you would think that they would they would understand that that wasn't their family. But it's always a possibility, especially if it's like if you try to go back to your family, we'll kill all of you and. They could have scared them that way. But I think every time I like look at the research on this, I fall in a different place in this. So while I was looking at this, I also went to like a huge, deep, dark hole of Reddit and amateur sleuths. This is just to say, even they can't, no one can agree on what happened. There is one person on Reddit that says John Sodder said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert the siblings that were there, but he later changed his story that he only called up to them. He's the also the only one that believes that the Sodder children are dead and wishes that his family would just accept it. I think that something that goes to this, and sorry, I'm talking about this Reddit post, I'm not saying I think this, but the person says, I think the most obvious theory is that he did go up there and see the children. But as he thought about it, he became ashamed that he got close, but wasn't able to save them. And he was nervous how his family would react and that they would hate him for not being able to save them. So he ended up changing his story. I, I, obviously this is Reddit. None of this is verifiable. I wasn't even able to find that John Sodder said anything about this. The person quoted Wikipedia, but I wasn't really able to see this. So I don't know if that's true. If it is, that is an interesting thing to add to this, that he changed his statements. But then there's another person on Reddit that's like, my gut has always told me that they died in the fire. But the one thing that's bugged me is the private investigator and basically they go into calling him like an asshole for taking their money and running off. But I also wasn't able to find that like he actually took their money. I know that he got like the letter and he went to check on the letter that Jenny received, but I never saw that he like took the money and then ran. 
if he did, then yes, he is completely an asshole and probably just ran off with the money. But what if it's something more? What if he was like basically paid off or told to stop looking into this? And so he did. So there's just so many things. But I think just to to bring it back to this, like Jenny and George never stopped looking for their children. They never stopped believing that they were alive, especially once George died, because he died well before Jenny did. She would wear black all the time. And she had a garden at the house that burned down. And she would spend her time tending to the garden there wearing black and was just very, very upset, obviously, as anyone would be if they thought their children were alive but missing, and then the even more horrible thought of they died before their time, because that's always a hard thing to wrap your mind around, a child dying before their parent. I think it's just a really interesting case, and I would love to hear your theories and what you think about it, because I still feel like I can't even make up my mind on what, what happened to these kids. I would love to think they would probably not be alive today if they didn't die in the fire. But I would like to think that they were able to have a nice long life. But that's the optimistic side of me. I I don't know what happened to them, but whatever it is, it's just it's really sad. And I'd love to hear your theories. Or if you know something that I wasn't able to find, feel free to reach out to me because I would love to hear it. And I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod and on Gmail at Fight or Fright Pod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at Fight Fright Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland, and I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this sprite.